McCullough, Dr. McCullough, you're, you're a champion, you're a you know, voice uh, for those who want to have medical freedom. And uh, I could not be prouder. Oftentimes when I'm doing business here in the Capitol, I wonder where are the great Americans, the great minds. And um, without hesitation, I'd say you're one of the great Americans of our time. You've uh, faced uh, being shut down and silenced, the name calling and the other garbage uh, during the, sh the shutdown, during the, the dark days of COVID and you stood firm. You never compromised, you stay focused on science. And uh, I appreciate your courage. You know, as the retired Army Colonel who's fought in many of the nation's wars here, you're one of the men I look to that's going to save our republic. So um, I'm going to hit at some points on your biography in case some people don't know who you are, but I'd be surprised if they don't by now. But uh, Dr. McCullough is one of the most published cardiologists in America. So when you have some faceless bureaucrat sitting behind a social media platform and, and, and shutting him down with no medical degree, are you kidding me? Some kid that doesn't like what Dr. McCullough says because it's not in line with the protocols preached by the CDC. He's published over a thousand pub publications <laughs> and he's uh, 660 citations in the National Library of Medicine. And if somebody of this caliber would be shut down by some social media outlet, you've got to be kidding me. I never thought I'd see the time. He's testified before the U.S. Senate, before legislators throughout the United States. Dr. McCullough has been here last year as well, and we, it was the most viewed. Uh, discussion in the Senate last year. He's testified, you know, across this nation here and various legislators across the nation. Uh, Dr. McCullough has uh, dozens of peer-reviewed publications specific to COVID. He knows what he's talking about. He's trained in it. He's uh, a leader in the field, and yet he was shut down on media, social media platforms. Uh, thank God for Elon Musk. Huh? Uh, it was good to see you back. Uh, he's commented extensively on the medical response of COVID-19 from, from a scientific perspective, real science. He's presented at last year's medical freedom panel here in the Capitol, as I mentioned. And uh, doctor, we're honored to have you. Before I ask and hand the floor to you, I'd like to welcome Representative Mike Jones. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, doctor, it's an honor to have you back in Pennsylvania, and the floor is yours. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for the audience and the ability to allow medical freedom to have its, its time for consideration here in the great state of Pennsylvania in America. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, as introduced. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm trained in epidemiology. Uh, I now have 71 peer-reviewed publications on the pandemic as an author, uh, as a principal investigator scientifically, and 681 citations in the National Library of Medicine. To give you a reference point, about 25 character is enough to uh, be granted full professor of medicine, that position I've held at multiple institutions. The SARS-CoV-2 pandemic from the outset has been the largest medical disaster, the largest human disaster now of all time in our country. And the stories that you're hearing represent casualties, analogous to casualties in war. December 10th, 2020, the Pfizer vaccine was emergency use authorized. It, prior to COVID, emergency use authorization was only for military needs, only for vaccines and other products used in the military. That mechanism was never used for a product to be used publicly. Messenger RNA is an old technology. A paper by Lalani and colleagues in the British Medical Journal characterizes 
U.S. efforts to develop messenger RNA since 1985. The United States had poured tens of billions of dollars into this technology. Nothing had come out of it. In 2012, DARPA, the research division of the military, announced the ADEPT P3 program, which said that they would use messenger RNA technology to end pandemics in 60 days, pandemics that our military would face. So it has been a U.S. government aspiration to use messenger RNA technology for a very long time. This technology was ready to go on the shelf. Operation Warp Speed just quickly brought it into testing. Three days into the U.S. National Declaration of an Emergency, Stefan Bainzel from Moderna announced that they had a vaccine. Three days into the emergency, and what we learned is Moderna had co-written its patent with the U.S. National Institutes of Health years ahead of time. So there was great planning for the possibility of a SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. In the last 90 days, the U.S. Congress Select uh, Committee for the, for the Origins of the Coronavirus has revealed that the origin of the virus was the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. And it was work done by U.S. researchers led up the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Ralph Barrick as a senior author, who in 2015 had published papers describing the creation of a chimeric virus, an intentionally human-engineered virus. And those papers were published in Nature Communications and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In the House investigation, we learned that former NIAID director Anthony Fauci and NIH director Francis Collins in January of 2020 held a comp teleconference with leaders in virology worldwide to create a deception campaign to lead the academic and public communities to believe that the virus arose out of nature. The official U.S. government narrative for three years was that the virus spontaneously rose out of nature in Wuhan, China. In, in the last 90 days, through investigation led by the committee led by Representative Comer, uh, uh, assisted by Representative Chip Roy and others, I've had personal communication with Chip Roy on this. Our government agencies have all done an about face, including the CDC via former Director Redfield, the National Security Administration, the FBI, the Department of Energy, they have all capitulated and have stated that indeed the virus came out of the lab in Wuhan, China. And to make matters worse, those agencies had oversight over what was going on. And in a 419 to zero vote, our U.S. House of Representatives voted to declassify all the documents on the creation of the virus, the U.S. creation of the virus outsourced to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Vaccine development was going on in concert with the creation of this. It was done in a biosecurity level four lab in Wuhan, China. The vaccines were designed and held initially by Moderna. Pfizer had a very similar version after Moderna. Moderna is suing Pfizer for copying their code as we sit here today. Later on, Janssen came forward, AstraZeneca, um, Oxford vaccine in the UK, and then Novavax from the United States. In total, there's 12 vaccines that have been used uh, on the market. 
Where we are today is that the original Pfizer Moderna vaccines, which are monovalent vaccines, have been withdrawn from the market. They never were fully licensed by the US FDA. They were never commercial products. They never had full package inserts. Janssen has been removed from the market. The original Novavax and now the bivalent Moderna and Pfizer vaccines exist on the market today. We have a situation where there has been unprecedented injuries, disabilities, and deaths with these vaccines. Now, our CDC says that 92% of Americans have taken at least one shot. We learned from a study from Harvard and Northeastern University called the COVID Community States Program, using a very large representative survey that the CDC was overestimating. In fact, the true number of Americans who took at least one shot is 75%. That means we have 25% of the population that's available to study as unvaccinated and and our um, experts testifying after me will talk about the differences between vaccinated and unvaccinated. As a doctor, I am seeing and managing patients who suffer vaccine injuries, disabilities, and sadly dealing with families uh, whose loved ones died after the vaccine. What I can tell you is that uh, by January 22nd of 2021, the U.S. Vaccine Averse Event Reporting System had already recorded 182 deaths with the COVID-19 vaccine. That's just actually a few weeks into the campaign. The whole system, for all the vaccines combined, for every year it's ever been done, typically comes in at about 150 deaths, which can happen. People can die of acute allergic reactions, widely administered vaccine. But 182, we were over the line. The program was co-administered and still is today not by a separate vaccine administration committee or organization, but is co-administered by the FDA and the CDC. Neither of those two agencies have any historical experience in administering a big vaccine campaign. Neither should they. The FDA is supposed to be a separate watchdog on drug safety. The CDC is strictly uh, to do outbreak investigation, data analytics, and vitro diagnostics. None of them have a role in directly administering a vaccine program. So by conflict of interest, neither one of those organizations was ever going to stop this campaign for safety. This campaign should have had an independent data safety monitoring board of experts to be reviewing data on a monthly basis. And when they saw a signal, as one was seen in January 22nd of 2021, the program should have been immediately paused to figure out why were people dying after the vaccine. Pfizer, Moderna, and the other manufacturers, by obligation, kept records for 90 days after release of their vaccine. By obligation, by regulatory obligation. None of them voluntarily disclosed their data to the U.S. public. They did to the FDA. And under court order, after many, many months, Pfizer was forced to release their data that the FDA knew about. In fact, the lawyer for the FDA wanted to block this information for 55 years to the American public. This is prima facie evidence that the FDA is involved in a drug safety cover-up. What we learned from that dossier is that Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of their vaccine. Sometimes many patients on the same day they took it or a few days afterwards. It exactly matched the early data in VAERS. And many months, Pfizer was forced to release their data that the FDA knew about. In fact, the lawyer for the FDA wanted to block this information for 55 years 
to the American public. This is prima facie evidence that the FDA is involved in a drug safety cover-up. What we learned from that dossier is that Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of their vaccine. Sometimes many patients on the same day they took it or a few days afterwards. It exactly matched the early data in VAERS. And Pfizer intentionally kept this confidential. The FDA kept it confidential. To this day, uh, not a single Pfizer representative has been questioned by any congressional or Senate committee on this. Moderna still has not released their data. The president of Moderna has been before the U.S. Senate, was never asked about the 90-day regulatory dossier, what the vaccine manufacturers know. Now we have 3,400 and growing papers in the peer-reviewed literature on vaccine injuries, disabilities, and deaths. 3,400 papers. This is astonishing. From case reports to case series, pathophysiologic studies, conclusive studies showing the vaccine is the cause of these injuries. And they fall into four broad categories. The first one is cardiovascular. The vaccines cause heart damage. It's called myocarditis. I see this routinely in my practice every day. The US FDA and regulatory agencies agree the vaccines cause myocarditis. That's heart inflammation. The genetic vaccines install the code for the lethal Wuhan spike protein and the spike protein damages the heart. As more and more blood flows through the heart, more vaccine is deposited. In cardiology, we have guidance and in, in, uh, 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 clear practice um, patterns and community standard of care patterns that say before COVID and before the vaccines, if a person has myocarditis, they cannot participate in sports because a surge of adrenaline, a surge of stress hormones can precipitate a cardiac arrest. So in my practice, I have never let a person with myocarditis, whether they feel it or not, ever participate in sports. Now, before the vaccines, the US NCAA, Big Ten League, the um, US military, the Israeli military, they had screening programs for myocarditis because there was a concern that COVID could cause myocarditis. And they found a handful of cases that probably met a definition. They were clinically inconsequential, no hospitalizations and no deaths. They all gave up screening for myocarditis. Then we bring in the vaccines, which the regulatory agencies agree cause myocarditis, and none of those organizations resumed screening for myocarditis. And so we've seen unprecedented deaths of athletes. In the uh, European sports leagues, I've published with Dr. P uh, Cretus, uh from Italy, that in a stable period before COVID-19, the rate of cardiac arrests under age 35, pro and semi-pro, that's a lot of people in these leagues, 29 cardiac arrests per year before COVID. Now, since the vaccines, that number annualized is 283 sudden cardiac deaths. We see montage reel after montage reel of sudden cardiac death. I can tell you as a cardiologist, there are two periods of time where the body has a surge of adrenaline. It's during sports, and it's also about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. do the normal waking cycles. And those are the two patterns where we see death of unknown cause. Now we see report after report on a daily basis of death of unknown cause. It's my conclusion as a cardiologist that it is the vaccine until proven otherwise.
with myocarditis now, we have autopsy proven conclusive papers published by Verma, Washington University in St. Louis, by Gill, Connecticut, uh, University of Michigan in Minnesota, by uh, Choi in uh, Korea, of fatal vaccine-induced myocarditis in young people. Conclusive autopsy proven. It is unequivocal that the vaccines cause a form of cardiac death due to um, myocarditis. For that reason, one death should have caused all of these to be pulled off the market. Recently, the FDA pulled an eye drop off the market because of a, a, um, an unusual side effect that caused death. One case. And so this has gone on because there is no data safety monitoring board. The FDA is actually administering the program. They're not providing any safety protections for Americans. And in this cardiovascular category also includes acceleration of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, uh, and need for bypass surgery and angioplasty, uh, includes stroke, both hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke. These are all described in the peer-reviewed literature. The second major category is neurologic. And you've heard reports today from two patients who suffered neurologic damage from the vaccine. Their neurologic damage, in addition to stroke, can include syndromes such as Guillain-Barre syndrome, ascending paralysis, of which has been described with all the vaccines, uh, forms of uh, neuropsychiatric conditions, including acute psychosis requiring hospitalization, progression of uh, Parkinson's and other uh, neurologically uh, uh, debilitating diseases, well described in the literature. And then a broad group developing small fiber neuropathy. And you've heard about that numbness and tingling in the hands and feet that's relentless. Seizures have been reported, new onset seizures reported in the peer-reviewed literature, people requiring epilepsy. Blindness from multiple mechanisms, hearing loss. There are untold numbers of senior citizens who took these vaccines who now have these progressive problems to deal with. The third category is blood clots. The vaccines unequivocally cause blood clots through the mechanism of producing the Wuhan spike protein. The spike protein, which is now in the bodies of everyone who's taken these vaccines, promotes blood clots, large blood clots. A paper from the FDA by Wu and colleagues from the US FDA published in the peer-reviewed literature described thousands of blood clots that they had in a sample going from the ankle to the hip, the largest blood clots we've ever seen, shooting to the lungs. 11% of cases in the Wu paper were fatal. My experience with these blood clots, are they're enormously resistant to blood thinners. We're using all different types of blood thinners and these additional drugs, and they are not going away like characteristic blood clots. Studies show the Wuhan spike protein is inside the blood clots and it's folding, forming what's called amyloid structures. Amyloid structures are like rubber in the human body. They look like rubber and the blood clots are large and rubberized and they are not being dissolved. A very disturbing paper recently published by Lee and colleagues with a sample of millions and millions of patients from 2021, they had unvaccinated and vaccinated. They did careful retinal scans. This is astonishing. They found astronomical rates of blood clots in the retinal arteries and retinal veins in those vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated. 
And that was only with two shots back in 2021. Two years later, these still exist. They're still there. The risk is there. So what I'm telling you is these vaccines have a very long effect in the human body. And when we see blood clots in the arteries, small arteries and veins of the eyes, they're reflecting what's going on in the body. The blood clots are coming from elsewhere. And so they certainly can be a cause of blindness, but is a general reflection of blood clotting occurring through the body throughout. This is a very large study, and I thought longest study showing that there is a tail, at least a two-year tail of risk and concern of anyone who's taken one of these vaccines back in 2021. Fourth category and final category are immune syndromes. There are now immune syndromes that occur after the vaccines that are well accepted in the literature. In fact, they have, they have acronyms. One's called vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpurea, VITT. It's a blood disorder where there's clotting and bleeding. It requires hospitalization. It's a medical disaster. And roughly a third die in the hospital of this horrible death. Another syndrome is called multi-system inflammatory disorder. Typically occurs in younger people. We have Americans who've had this syndrome where their organs have all been damaged. They end up with tracheostomy tubes in wheelchairs. They are wrecked. A recent report from Japan describes a 14-year-old girl who took a, a first shot of messenger RNA and had some side effects. A second shot had more side effects. And then six months later, she takes the booster. Her sister describes her having trouble breathing that night and the parents find her dead the next day. They do an autopsy every single organ in the body is being rotted out with inflammation in her body multi-system inflammatory disorder which is fatal one case of an adolescent dying of such a syndrome should globally pull these off the market autopsy proven meticulous cases so to summarize there are four domains of injury cardiovascular neurologic thrombotic and immunologic the hardest question I've faced so far in all of my appearances in the media, and I've probably given more media uh, appearances now than any public figure in the world on COVID-19, the question came from Joe Rogan on his podcast in 2021. He said, Dr. McCullough, if these vaccines are so bad, why doesn't everybody have a side effect and are damaged after the vaccines? I didn't have the answer at that time, but I have it now. A paper by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark has clearly shown that the batches of vaccines that come out, the lots uh, groupings are not the same. They had all the Pfizer data administered in Denmark and they had every side effect. They found three risk groups of batches. The first batch, which was about a third of people who got the vaccine, zero side effects nothing whatsoever. It's like taking a shot of saline, nothing. The second group, which is about two thirds, had some moderate side effects, uh, but, but the, the rate of serious side effects was, was pretty low. Then there's a third group, which is 4.2% of everybody who, uh, of the vials, their side effect rate was through the roof. When they did what's called an R-squared analysis, that is how much of the variation in side effects is explained by this batch-to-batch -batch variability, the answer was 75% plus. That means we have a product manufacturing problem. Either the vials, these, these files, and unfortunately, these two ladies almost certainly received a bad batch. 
And these uh, vials either have hyper-concentrated lipid nanoparticles and excessive amounts of messenger RNA. And in the United States, 94% of people who took a shot took messenger RNA, so we can stay on that, that, that uh, technology. We, uh, the other possibilities is that it could be contaminated with what's called cDNA or plasmids or other contaminants. It's certainly possible. I think hyperconcentration of messenger RNA is most likely because what we're seeing are messenger RNA spike protein mediated injuries. But Senator Ron Johnson, just from the VAERS data, had sent analysis to the CDC on this and the FDA asking for them to analyze the lot-to-lot variations that we're seeing, and he received a multi-page letter back that essentially says, we disagree, we don't see any difference in lot-to-lot. Now it's in the peer-reviewed publication uh, forever in medical history showing it is a batch variability problem. Fortunately, most Americans received batch one or batch two. They're okay. Fortunately, they're fine. But for the small number of people who did receive a batch, we have big problems. A Zogby survey done last summer a population-based sample suggests 15% of Americans now have some injury, disability, or some medical problem they're dealing with due to COVID-19 vaccines. It's roughly that number. And our CDC V-Safe data, which was the self-reported data from the cell phone, show that 7.7% of people who take a shot have to go to the emergency room or urgent care with some acute problem after the vaccine. So the CDC V-Safe the Zogby survey, the VAERS data, they're all cohesive, and the data are cohesive worldwide. We see this in every reporting system, Yellow Card, VigiSafe, and the, um, the, uh, the UTRIS system. So, so it's, it's seen everywhere. In 2021, I started to raise my concerns regarding the vaccines in March of 2021 in the Texas Senate. I published a paper in May of 2021 with 57 authors. We sent it to every government agency saying we, we have serious questions regarding safety. In June of 2022, the World Council for Health, which is a large representative body of investigators and those who are working in COVID-19, issued a recall for the vaccines. Take them all off the market. And then on December 7th, 2022, I called in a special Senate panel in conclusion that we should withdraw all the vaccines from the market for unacceptable safety and harm to Americans. There has been no response from our regulatory agencies in terms of pulling these off the market. There still has been no change in the stance of our regulatory agencies. They continue to support these vaccines with essentially illegal and unlawful promotion of the vaccines. None of them are fully licensed. They can't be advertised on TV. We can't have HHS, the FDA, or the CDC, or the vaccine companies advertising vaccines on TV or on the radio. And we certainly can't have any organization mandating vaccines that are experimental emergency use authorized and have generated this terrible safety track record and trail of injuries disabilities and deaths in the united states that's my testimony thank you for having me thank you doctor that's outstanding
I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Representative Don Kiefer uh, online on Zoom. So, Doctor, I have uh, four questions here. The first one is, uh, in your assessment, what portion of the population has permanent or serious effects as a result of this? My estimate is probably less than 5% have permanent uh, disability. I think a large of it has to do with stroke and neurologic injury. I have uh, patients in my practice who have needed a heart transplant defibrillator after myocarditis, um, but I think it's less than 5%. The single greatest advance we have in the care of treating patients with this is understanding medicinal approaches. So we're learning how to treat myocarditis and these syndromes with prescription drugs. And we found a general effect of a natural supplement called natokinase. Natokinase is the derivative of the breakdown of soy by a bacteria called Bacillus subtilis natto. The Chinese have been eating natto for about a thousand years for its health benefits. They've created it as a supplement. They've been using it for about two decades for cardiovascular benefit because it is a form of a mild blood thinner and it affects the blood vessels in a favorable way. But the, the Japanese have shown in three preclinical pre papers, very convincing, it can dissolve the spike protein. The spike protein does not seem to be dissolved by any natural human enzymes, and it's stuck in the body for months, if not years. So natokinase, N-A-T-T-O-K-I-N-A-S-E. I can't make any therapeutic claims, but I can tell you that the preclinical data are convincing, and that plus other things may be helpful, including other natural approaches. Uh, a, a recent trial of curcumin was positive. Bromelain. N-acetylcysteine, a randomized trial of hyperbaric oxygen has been successful in patients like these. So we're working on coming up with approaches, and it's my hope that if we actually will have recognition of vaccine injuries and funding for research, of which we have none right now, we can begin to heal after this great tragedy. Are you seeing the effects in some of the patients that have been injured were the effects diminish after two years, or you're just seeing if they didn't have a, a problem but to report nothing after two years, they're good to go? Is, is that what you were alluding to? Seeing both. I, I think syndromes are diminishing over time very slowly. Obviously, the two presenters today are representative of two-year syndromes now, which have been life-altering. Uh, there are clearly people who just never have a problem with these shots, and we think they've received the low-risk batches. And when they're in those low-risk batches, nothing seems to happen from the point they take the vaccines and onward. So we have to hope the, the people in our family circles are in those lucky groups. And uh, also related to that, so treatments and protocols, uh, where you hang your hat, for instance, with the spike proteins, are they there forever once they're in your body? Work by Bruce Patterson at Incel DX is the best work we have available. In severe COVID, severe COVID, people hospitalized, he was able to find the S1 segment stuck in white blood cells for 15 months after the infection. It, after the vaccinated, he's been able to find the full length spike protein, the S1 and the S2 segment, again stuck in white blood cells for at least nine months. But that's as long as he's looked. A paper from Stanford from Rokin and colleagues has found the messenger RNA, which is the genetic code for the spike protein, stuck in lymph nodes at two months, but that's as long as they've, they've looked. So I can tell you, both the messenger RNA and the spike protein are long-lasting in the human body, probably months, if not years. So uh, also related to that, then, of course, with the endeavors to put mRNA in our food supply, when you ingest those, is that similar to an injection where it enters your body and becomes part of your problem? 
December of 2022, Zhang and colleagues from a small Chinese company took a restricted segment of the genetic code for the spike protein receptor binding domain, and they were able to stabilize it in an exosome, a phospholipid packet, like a milk bubble. And they actually gave milk through feedings to mice. And with three feedings, they were successfully able to immunize the mice. So they proved that messenger RNA crosses the GI tract and the USDA has an entire array of genetic vaccines that they are in co-development with uh, uh, companies for vaccination of the food supply, both the, um, the vegetable and fruits food supply, as well as um, livestock. Now, the vaccines in livestock so far, and, and by the way, self-replicating uh, uh, RNA vaccines are used in pork, uh, they are used to prevent, um, you know, porcine diseases at this juncture. Uh, many experts believe they're not needed. The conventional uh, veterinary vaccines work fine. The livestock supply is fine. They're, they're, this technology is not needed. But yet it's being advanced by the drug companies, predominantly Merck. Uh, it's been proposed in cattle. It's not yet in cattle. Missouri has had a house bill to at least get transparency on this, uh, and they've tried to advance this. Americans want transparency if genetic vaccines are used to protect the animals. What's concerning about the plants, though, is most of the vaccines in plants are attempts to actually vaccinate humans. And so on the USD website is vaccination against various forms of hepatitis, infectious diarrheas, and, and other things. And the great concern here is there could be a misadventure of ingesting genetic material, just like having it injected in the arm, when we have no idea how long it lasts in the body and what the side effects would be. Thank you. And that, that's why we introduced Senate, Senate Bill 741, of course, for transparency in Pennsylvania. We actually uh, copied the, the Missouri bill, <laughs> nuanced a little bit. Uh, the next question is, do you, do you have hope that we're eventually going to get a lot-to-lot -lot study so we get to the bottom line of the effects in which um, variations in the lots triggered these reactions of people? I think the Schmeling data are compelling. It's been published in the peer-reviewed literature. Uh, as uh, S-C-H-M-E-L-I-N-G from Denmark. And the lot-to-lot -lot variability is the largest explanation of why people have side effects and others don't. Now, there's some predisposing factors, and this is coming out in the literature. People with a baseline family or personal history of blood clotting are going to have a much higher risk of blood clotting. If there's a baseline risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, much higher risk of precipitated stroke uh, and uh, in myocardial infarction. If there's baseline hypertension, there's a much higher risk of a hypertensive crisis that culminates in a disaster like aortic dissection, uh, ripping the major blood vessel in the body, or a hemorrhagic stroke. So baseline conditions increase the risk. And keep in mind, in the randomized trials that were done, the two-month randomized trials, the one-month to follow up, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, they excluded people with major medical problems. The majority of people had no medical problems, so we didn't see these signals originally in the clinical trials to such a large degree. Now, when they were introduced in the population at large, we, we have medical problems. That's where we've seen the blossoming of these horrific safety events. And that's the apples and oranges between other vaccines and this one. This one rushed without observation or with trials. As I mentioned, the polio shot, 25 years of trials before it was made available to the general public. Apples and oranges when people bring, bring that up. Uh, the last question, then I'll hand it over to Representative Jones and then Senator Dush. Uh, the unvaxxed. You know, the unvaxxed want to stay unvaxxed. And so what danger, uh, 
do, do they have from the blood supply if they have to get a transfusion? Uh, what's the story on shedding? Is, is, is that a problem for long term? Or is there a limited amount of time that people with the bags are shedding? Any other things regarding to uh, contamination? Then, of course, we did mention, of course, the danger in the food supply with the mRNA. I think you cover that. So the unvaxxed uh, danger to exposure with the blood supply or from shedding from those with the, the shot. Well, the good news for the unvaccinated is they have the best overall COVID outcomes. Any, anywhere where there's a fair assessment, and they have the vaccine records like in the UK and Australia, the unvaccinated look terrific. The United States, the data simply aren't reliable since the CDC has not released the vaccine administration data. So all these assessments of vaccinated, unvaccinated United States are not reliable because electronic medical record has a default in unvaccinated. So we really can't make any inferences on who's hospitalized or not hospitalized based on vaccine status in the United States, but we can in the UK and elsewhere. And it's clear the majority of people hospitalized and dying with COVID through 2021 and 2022 were the vaccinated. This is clear. And in fact, Cleveland Clinic has recently published their data. The unvaccinated have the lowest risk of recurrent Omicron infection. And every additional shot, the risk of more Omicron infections increases. So the vaccines have backfired. Uh, in terms of shedding, uh, what we know is that a paper by Hannah and colleagues in JAMA last summer demonstrated in breastfeeding women, and by the way, our CDC says 65% of mothers have taken a shot either before or during the, the um, pregnancy, that uh, Hannah showed messenger RNA flowing in the breast milk from the mother to the baby. So we could assume that the baby is ingesting the messenger RNA and it may be absorbed. There has not been a bona fide case of transference of messenger RNA or spike protein published during blood transfusion. And so we don't know how many people freshly vaccinated donate blood and during the blood filtering and preservation process, we don't know if the blood supply is at risk. I, I led a group of pathologists writing the, um, the uh, uh, American Association of Clinical Blood Banking and American Red Cross in 2021, expressing our concerns about contamination of the blood supply. And they responded back, recognizing our concerns. They did nothing over it. I can tell you the country of Switzerland at least has a checkbox. So people have to disclose whether they took a vaccine. We pressed the American Red Cross just for a checkbox, and they've declined to do that. Now, they are reordering all of their data entry forms right now at the American Red Cross. This is interesting. There are All the forms are being reoriented, but we can't get the checkbox on whether or not they took a COVID vaccine and when. But they're reorganizing everything to have more terminology for gender, transgender, and different sexual preferences. So as far as the shedding, uh, what's your observation on that and how long when somebody takes a booster or the vaccine, are they potentially contaminating folks? There's a paper by Castriuta and colleagues showing that the messenger RNA is circulating in the bloodstream at least 28 days. That's what they, sh that's as long as they've looked. I've said, I told you it's stuck in lymph nodes shown by Stanford at least at two months. I, it's hard to give guidance. My general guidance is no close contact or, or other, you know, opportunities for shedding for at least 90 days afterwards. We simply don't know how long the risk is. Now, I think the big deal is shedding of the genetic material. The, the seroprevalence studies show all of them, Framingham Heart, there's one at UT Houston as well showing, we're up to 97, 98% um, seropositive against the spike protein. We've all been exposed to the spike protein. We all have some degree of protection. What people are worried, you know, many people, as you pointed out, lost their jobs, have been professionally 
um, damaged for not taking a vaccine, the last thing they want to do is get it inadvertently yes. through transmission. Thank you, Dr. Mike. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Doctor. I just want to start by thanking you for your all, all the work and the courage that it's taken uh, to stand up when so many doctors, I think, uh, believed, uh, at least at some level, what you believe and uh, lacked the courage to, to say so. Um, for a whole other myriad of reasons that we should, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a scary time when doctors aren't at liberty to, to speak their mind. Uh, my first question is, what's your IQ? Because I have never seen such impressive testimony from someone not using a single note. Um, that was uh, pretty phenomenal. <laughs> you don't have to answer that question, by the way. I'm, I'm putting it somewhere north of 170, though. But in any event, a um, couple questions, and, and just sort of playing devil's advocate, to be clear, not <laughs> certainly not disagreeing. Um, because my question was the same as Joe Rogan's question, quite frankly. Um, and you answered that, but then you went on to say that batch one seems... To, why would you pull everything versus pulling the bad batches only, which is assuming you can track where they came from, which I certainly hope we could. Why would someone not take uh, the vaccine if they knew it was from, quote, you know, batch one or a safe batch? So if the vaccine was perfectly safe, why would not what somebody, uh, you know, not take one? You know, the first point is natural immunity. So if someone's already had the infection, we now have data, Kimatelli and colleagues from uh, Qatar, and a very good paper to quote is Chin and colleagues from the U.S. prison system. This is amazing. If one's already been through Delta or Omicron in the Chin study, New England Journal of Medicine, October 2022, zero risk of hospitalization and death. Zero. So one can get the infection again, but it's so, so mild, it's like a common cold. One wouldn't take a shot for that. So clearly if someone's been through the infection, a, a paper by Clausen and colleagues from Harvard estimates 94% of us have been through the infection. So we would never take a shot for an illness we already had. That would be the, the first point. The second point is the lack of benefit. There's never been a prospective randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial showing the vaccine reduces hospitalization and death. It actually doesn't reduce severity of disease, not shown in any study. Now the CDC acknowledges it doesn't stop spread or transmission. They came out early in 2021 and said, listen, the vaccine's not working. It's not stopping spread. So if it doesn't stop spread, it doesn't reduce severity of disease, it doesn't provide any meaningful benefit, one shouldn't take it. Thank you, and then the, did you, did I understand, and to be clear, you're looking at someone that banked on natural immunity, and as far as I know, my entire family did as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you 110%. Um, uh, and, and I think the idea of vaccinating children who were at inc incredibly low risk, it, it, was, it was just uh, <laughs> criminal is a good word for it, as somebody said. Um, did I understand you to say that most who had died from COVID were the vaccinated, not the unvaccinated, or did I mishear what you said? In uh, the UK, Australia, uh, South Africa, where they have good data systems, you know, the contemporary, let's say late 2021 and 2022, the majority who have been hospitalized and died are fully vaccinated. So right now, New South Wales just put out their data. Now, Australia is interesting because they had pre-vaccinated the whole country and then COVID got there late. So Australia was the real test of whether or not the vaccines would work and they failed colossally. So the most recent analysis, 99% of people hospitalized and died are fully vaccinated. United States, our CDC tracked these breakthrough infections. They tried, people reported the CDC 
May 1st of 2021, the CDC was overwhelmed with fully vaccinated Americans who were being hospitalized and died. They gave up. They put a notice on their website. They said, we gave up. We, we cannot track breakthrough infections. The vaccine was failing so badly. So what about all the people that died before vaccines were even on the market? I mean, they were unvaccinated and died from COVID, correct? They died in, a, in an analysis by Vert Kirk and colleagues, and this was the subject of our, our testimony last year. Vert Kirk and colleagues, a large sample, this is really tragic. Those who were hospitalized and died of COVID, they did so because of a lack of early treatment. They didn't get comprehensive early treatment. And the drugs work in combination. It was never about any single drug. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, I think the featured emergency use authorized products that were safe and effective, every American should have gotten these in the emergency room before they went into the hospital, were monoclonal antibodies. I used them extensively in my practice. They consistently worked. And sadly, only 15% of Americans got these in the emergency room or urgent care. And when they got them, they survived the hospitalization. The question on the table here in Pennsylvania is, why don't you review hospital system activity? What hospitals actually gave monoclonal antibodies and saved lives, and which ones didn't, and why didn't they give it? Yeah, that, that was also criminal. I mean, you know, to not treat people uh, out of, you know, basically political correctness, uh, keeping you from, you know, fulfilling your Hippocratic oath. Uh, there's there, there's a, a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of injustice that needs to be uh, <laughs> rectified here. Um, do you, I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to time here, but the, um, I know I have a couple friends in the medical field. The, the clotting is like undeniable. They, they, I've, I've seen pictures of the clots they're pulling out of people. They're just unprecedented. Um, what they've had trouble distinguishing was, how do, you, how do you demonstrate that that was caused by the vaccine and not by COVID? I think the Wu paper that I cited from the FDA is definitive. I mean, they are reporting clots that doctors have diagnosed by ultrasound or venography that are enormous. Now, the reports we're seeing of clots post-mortem, uh, I think that's a little bit more problematic. Now, blood should liquefy uh, after death and be drained out. That's what the morticianers do. They, they were finding blood clotting and then doing dissection and pulling out large clots. Some of that could have been just post-mortem thrombus formation that's driven by endogenous spike protein. Uh, the post-mortem studies don't have a good characterization of vaccinated versus unvaccinated. It's just an observation that they're making. But I think the FDA paper is conclusive. Uh, all the vaccines cause blood clotting. The peer-reviewed literature, the autopsies, there's hundreds and hundreds of autopsy studies now, and they're describing you know, fatal pulmonary emboli, thromboembolic diseases. You're right, it's, it's, it's inarguable that the vaccines are prothrombotic. This recent study showing the blood clots in the eyes uh, by Lee and colleagues is extraordinary. It's a massive sample size. Thank you, and am I good still? Okay, <laughs> um, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do two more and then I'll cut off because we could talk all day and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk later. The, um, and thank you, Senator, for holding this hearing. Um, the, do we have any, and this, this may be beyond your purview, or I'm certainly asking you to speculate a bit. I have my own hypothesis or two. Um, you talked early on about the process of this virus being created in Wuhan and, and I guess at the direction of the, why would someone create such a virus? I mean, it was this, do we have any insight into that? Um, I'm, I'm not a, at all expert, but uh, uh, yeah, well, I guess why, my, my 
you know, part of my concern is that, you know, we have a real demographic problem in this country. I'm guessing it's even worse in China where they had this evil one-child policy for years. And when I say a demographic problem, I mean that our population's aging, the baby boomers, or people are living longer than ever. And it seems to me if you wanted to come up with a solution, uh, certainly a Chinese-type solution, uh, to take, take out the old and the weak, this would be the ideal virus to do so. Um, and that's that's just a hypothesis. Um, but do we have? Do you have any insight into that, or why does somebody create such a thing in the first place? In the Ralph Barrick papers published in 2015, where Manicheri is the first author, Barrick is the senior author, Nature Communications, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. These are very good journals. They thank the National Institutes of Health and the National Immunology Allergy Branch and the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the go-between NGO organization, the EcoHealth Alliance. They thank these organizations, and they explicitly state in the, um, in the acknowledgments that this is gain-of-function research. It started before President Obama's ban on gain-of-function research, but because it started before, it was grandfathered in, and they outsourced it to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The question on the table is, is this science for science sake? Are scientists making new viruses for science sake? Well, in the Barrick papers, they not only made the new virus, the chimeric virus, they also made a monoclonal antibody and a killed vaccine in the same paper. DARPA, our research unit of the military, on their website, and BARDA, the division of the NIH that deals with biological threats, their aspirations, are that the new types of warfare that we may have is biological warfare. And so there are biolabs all over the world. And the biolabs are working on enhanced biological threats, and they're working on countermeasures. Countermeasures would be monoclonal antibodies, vaccines, and other therapeutics. We have that for anthrax. We found out we have this for smallpox and monkeypox because when we had monkeypox in the United States, we found out we had countermeasures ready to go. We had uh, ticoviramid, an IV and oral drug, and we had a monkeypox vaccine ready to go, immediately EUA approved. So 20 years ago, we heard about ballistic missiles and defense sh uh, shields and other things. And I think the new normal is today is biological threat research, offensive threats, the viruses and other organisms, and the defensive assets, which are monoclonal antibodies, vaccines, and therapeutics. Thank you. My last one, um, there may, maybe there, based on the 3,400 papers you talked to, maybe there's already more than enough uh, evidence, and this would just be piling on. But I'm curious, unique, somewhat unique here in Pennsylvania, maybe Ohio, um, you know, we have the Amish community, which to the best of my knowledge, and I am making an assumption here, um, I don't think... Uh, subscribe to the vaccine in any significant way and then even mask and that sort of stuff. I'm just curious if anybody, and to my knowledge, there were very few of them uh, that, that, that passed away from COVID. I know there, I think there were some, and again, I'm not expert on it. I'm just curious if anybody uh, is or has talked about uh, studying some of these communities uh, because they were, you know, it's fairly good group of people there that, you know, there may be some uh, interesting findings that come out of it. It's a great suggestion. I'm going to let my colleague Steve Kirsch address it since he's just interviewed the Amish uh, on his trip here. Let me say there are three papers, uh, Subramanian, Kemp, and Beatty, all showing that the least vaccinated countries had the, the lowest amount of COVID and the lowest number of deaths. Haiti, Ivory Coast, and some of these very poor countries, they couldn't afford the vaccines. They did the best with COVID. 
The United States, which is a heavily vaccinated country, UK, Australia, and others succeed us, but the United States leads the world in COVID deaths. We're number one in COVID deaths. We're only one-sixth of the world's population. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, Doug, you and I have gone through the NBC nuclear, biological, and content, uh, uh, chemical training going back decades, and we we were aware of the, the labs. What disturbs the living daylights out of me is that we farmed this out. If we were going to be doing it, we America recognized, and there are treaties that uh, prohibit a lot of biological uh, research into weaponization. And the fact that we farmed it out to some country that is a stated adversary of the United States. Uh, my blood pressure today <laughs> is just off, got to be off the charts. Thank God I didn't take the vaccine. Uh, you know, uh, you, you had mentioned about the Department of Health uh, not allowing uh, advertising. Uh, that's the federal. Our state Department of Health has these billboards out there saying, I vaxxed my child. Is there a, is there a pro, prohibition for the federal government that pro, prohibits them from doing that? Pharmaceutical and biologic product advertising falls under uh, the Truth in Advertising Laws, the U.S. Drug and Cosmetic Law, and the Landman Act. The Landman Act is very important because Landman Act says what's on trial here is science, that there must be fair balance on the claims that something does something, but also the side effects. And you know this when you see TV commercials on things, the side effects are always given. The vaccines are actually being advertised and promoted without fairly telling people about the side effects exactly. and without fairly telling them that they are not yet licensed by the FDA. No unlicensed product may be promoted, period. So this is in gross violation. So anybody putting up a billboard, and no matter what agency they are, state, local, or federal, are violating our own laws. Thank you. And I'm glad, as you brought up, how the federal government has finally capitulated. That's the exact appropriate term. They've acknowledged their complicity in this to an extent. We need the doors thrown wide open on all of this stuff. And you know what? I, I know we've got some other testi testifiers here that have to be in some other locations. I want, I want to uh, save the time, but if at some point I'd like to get your information because uh, I think for the sake of my constituents and others, I'd like to maybe do uh, an online podcast kind of thing to set up and have a, a lengthy discussion into some of the areas that I have questions on. But I, I do know I do want to be mindful of the time. God bless you. Keep up the fight, brother. Thank you. I'm happy Thank to, Senator. Doctor, Thank we you. appreciate you. I remember uh, last year we had our acting secretary of education here, and, and they were pushing the mask. And, and I asked how many deaths there were in Pennsylvania schools. And they didn't even know what they are talking about. They didn't know. But for, I've come to find out for 0.00001% of the population, they're forcing masks on kids. And it was just incredible. I call it mask psychosis. And I don't know that we ever saw the time, and never dreamt of a time, where we're going to see people just shut down their brains, sitting alone in a car with masks on, you know, and with 
Well, let me just bring in that a Cochrane analysis is one of the leading analytic groups in the UK published uh, an analysis on public masking. Dozens and dozens of randomized trials, observational studies, zero impact. Public masking had zero impact. And even today, the CDC says the only time we need to wear a mask is in a healthcare setting when we're coming face to face with a COVID patient, just like we would for any other respiratory disease. So what the CDC says now is correct. What was wrong was three years of, of perseveration and hyper-focus on masking, which was while people were being hospitalized and, and dying. The focus was on the wrong part of pandemic response. Our principal focus should always been treatment of high-risk people, particularly our seniors, to protect them and not making public policy about masks. Thank you. Thank you, sir. God bless you. We appreciate your testimony.